Let us pray. Father God, we've just sung that nothing compares to the promises we have in you. Lord, we know that that's true. We know that what you promise us is beyond compare. You promise us life in all its fullness. And Lord, because you have promised us that, we know we can trust you and we know that you will give us just that if only we accept it from you. Lord, as we come now to look at your word this morning, we're coming to learn and to grow to love the promises that you've made to us. Lord, would you help us to understand your word? And above all, would you assure each one of us personally that the things that we learn there are for us? Lord, we pray that every one of us this morning may know that the promise of the kingdom of God is for us. Come and speak your word to us just now, we pray. Amen. Last week we began a series in which we're hoping to get an overview of the Bible. And if you remember, I said that we would try to get through the whole of the Bible in about seven or eight weeks. It took us seven or eight weeks to get through 11 chapters, but we're going to speed up a wee bit and see if we can go through the Bible in about seven or eight weeks. So we started last week, and we're going to continue with that this morning. I've reprinted on the back of your bulletin a wee table that summarizes the stuff that we talked about last week, and I'm just going to refer to that now so you can have a quick glance at it, and it'll remind you of some of the ground that we covered last week. The first two parts of that table were, should have been pretty well known to us because we had spent a, a lot more time dealing with those as we looked at the first 11 chapters in Genesis. But chapter 12 was new to us. And when we looked at chapter 12, we looked at God's promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham that he was going to reestablish the kingdom that had been destroyed by human sinfulness. God's descendants, sorry, Abraham's descendants were going to be God's people, and they were going to live in his land, and they were going to enjoy his blessings. Well, we're going to take some time now to work out and to trace through the Bible whether God kept his promise. God made these, these grand big promises to Abraham. We want to try and establish whether God kept those promises. It's going to take us two weeks to do that because there's quite a lot in here. In the next two weeks, we're going to try and cover a thousand years in the history of Israel, and we're going to cover about a third of the Bible. So we're, we're going to have to move pretty quickly, but I think, we can, I think we can do this. If you look there at the second wee table on the back of your, your bulletin, you'll see how we're going to split all of this, this huge chunk of the Bible into four different sections. Each one of those sections deals with one of of the promises that we have thought about. And if you're very perceptive, you'll notice that I've sneaked in a new one, um, which we'll look at next week. This week, we're going to look at the first two aspects of God's promise to Abraham and see how they were, how God kept those. God's promises regarding his people and God's promises regarding them living under his rule and under his blessing. So let's, let's make a start 
very quickly this morning. Whenever God promised Abraham that he was going to work among his descendants and make them his own special people, he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, Abraham at that point in time was not a great nation. He was just an ordinary man. So we're going to look very quickly at how the story of Genesis chapter 12 right through to Exodus 18 tells us how God actually did that, how God made Abraham into a great nation. Now, one thing we're going to notice this morning is that every turn along the way, there, there were pitfalls here. This promise of God didn't seem to come about. Uh, it wasn't fulfilled easily. And the first problem is a very, very fundamental one. Whenever God made the promise to Abraham that he was going to make him into a great nation, Abraham and his wife Sarah didn't have any children, and they didn't have any prospect of any children. So that, that was a, a difficult starting point. Now, God had promised Abraham that he was going to make him into a nation. So Abraham waited, and Sarah waited, and, and they waited for years, and, and nothing happened. There was no sign that God's promise was going to be fulfilled. So eventually, Abraham took the thing into, took the matter into hand, and he, he, he slept with Sarah's servant, Hagar, and had a son by her. And in Abraham's mind, he thought, well, God didn't quite keep his promise, so I, I'll help him out. But God made it very clear that it wasn't going to be that way, that Ishmael, this son born by Hagar, was not going to be the son through whom this new nation was going to arise. Eventually, God came back to Abraham and he promised him, Abraham, you've been patient, you've waited for years, your wife Sarah is going to have a son. And at this point, Sarah was 90 years old. So it became increasingly difficult for Abraham to believe these promises of God. But the miraculous thing is that eventually, eventually Sarah did have a son. Uh, the son whom we know as Isaac was born uh, to Sarah at the age of 90. So this was incredible. And right at the start of this, this incredible story that we're going to look at, we realize one thing. If God is going to keep the promises that he makes to his people, there are going to be miracles along the way. God is going to be the one who does it. It's not going to be Abraham. It's not going to be Abraham stepping in to help God out. It will be God alone who keeps his promises. So that's the first thing we, we discover in the story of Abraham. But very quickly as we read on, something really, really strange happens. Because now that this son is born, this son on whom the whole thing depends, the son of the covenant. While Isaac's still a young boy, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, sacrifice Isaac. I want you to take him and kill him much as you would sacrifice an animal. Now, that, that's, that seems a very strange thing for God to ask. It seems strange anyway to ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac but it becomes particularly strange whenever you realize that Isaac is the son on whom everything depends, the son of the covenant. And many of you will know this story. Abraham did proceed and was just about to, to sacrifice Isaac when God stepped in at the last minute and said, no, don't sacrifice your son. I know that you would have done it. I know that you obeyed me. 
but here there's a ram that you can use instead. Normally, whenever we think of that story, we think, as a, think of it as a very impressive story of Abraham's obedience, that he would obey God even when God asked him to do that. I think there's something a little bit more going on than that. It's more than just a story about obedience. It shows that Abraham believes God's promises. Do you remember these promises we're talking about? I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and make you into a great nation. Somehow Abraham believed that God could still do that. He believed either that that God was going to protect his son, or else that if he killed his son, in Hebrews we're told, Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's how strong Abraham's belief in the promises of God is. And I think that's incredible and and certainly an encouragement to me and and maybe a challenge to all of us. Do, Do we really believe God's promises in the Bible to that extent? Do we believe that if God has promised something, it will happen, come what may? Abraham did. And God, God saw that as, as a very faithful action on his part. <coughs> we have to remember what we're talking about here. It's all about God fulfilling the promises that he had made to Abraham. Whenever Abraham eventually died, <coughs> his promises continue in the family of his son Isaac. Now, if you know the biblical story, you'll know that Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And again, there's something very strange that happens at this point. (coughs) In the culture of that day, it would have been absolutely understood that the eldest son was always the key player in any family. If God had made a promise to a family you'd always expect that that family would continue through the line of the eldest son. But here we find something very strange. We find that rather than God choosing to work through Esau, the eldest son, he chooses to work through Jacob, the younger son. Now, don't, don't make a mistake about this here. It's not because Jacob's a good guy. Jacob's name means trickster or con man. So that's, that's the person whom God chooses to work through. And when we read this, it's hard to understand exactly why, but it's a good reminder to us that all of us who are in God's family are there only because of God's grace and God's goodness, because He chooses us, not because we are good people on our own merits. I think that that's really important for us to remember, particularly those of us who've been in the church for a long time. Because sometimes I think once we've been in the church for a while and once we've been following Jesus for a while, we subtly begin to think that we're there because actually, yes, we are a wee bit better than those other people. But here we're reminded in God's Word, no, that's not the case. It's because God in His grace chooses us. That's how we get to be part of the family of God. I'm going to to skip over the the story of of Joseph, although it's a a major story in the Bible. Very quickly, I'll draw out what's the main main aspect of this. If you remember the Joseph story, two drastic things happen 
First of all, Joseph is badly mistreated by his brothers and he's sent to live in, in Egypt. You remember he's sold into captivity, he ends up in, in prison in Egypt. So that's, that's pretty bad for a family on whom the promise of God rests. But at the same time, you might remember the whole rest of Joseph's family are in danger of being wiped out because they live in Canaan where there's a famine and there is no food and there hasn't been a harvest and there won't be for seven years. So what we have here is a massively significant situation where the family who have been promised they're going to be the people of God are in coming within a hair's breadth of being wiped out by starvation. But this is, this is where God, again, is at work. The incredible thing is that God planned for Joseph to go to Egypt. All that mistreatment, all that, all that stuff that his brothers did to him, it was all part of God's plan. God wanted Joseph to be in a position of influence in Egypt so that he could protect and ensure that his family would not be wiped out in the famine that was in their land. Isn't that incredible? The promises of God are on this family, and we see the kind of things that God is able to do to ensure that his promises are fulfilled. I want to slow down at this point in the story because we come here to a very crucial place. If you remember, eventually God's people, after 400 years, do come out of Egypt, and we see God very, very powerfully at work at this point in the history of his people. You'll probably remember the stories of Moses and the ten plagues. The reason those plagues were sent on the people of Egypt is that Pharaoh, their ruler, refused to let God's people go. So God sent plague after plague as a judgment on Pharaoh to, to prompt him to, to let his people go. It wasn't until the final plague that, that Pharaoh finally gave in. I wonder if you remember what that final plague was. One dreadful night, God, through, God passed through the land of Egypt. And the angel of the Lord, God's messenger of judgment, ended the life of the firstborn, the oldest son in every Egyptian household. It happened only in the household of the Egyptians the oldest in the household of the Israelites didn't die. They were protected and they were saved. And there was a reason for that. You maybe remember this part of the story where God promised his people that they would be safe if they took a lamb and if they sacrificed that lamb and spread the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of the home in which they lived. God promised that if they did that, the angel of his judgment would pass over pass by their door, and that his judgment would not fall on, on that household. Because someone else had died, a lamb in this case, they need not die. We learn here, in this story, away in Egypt, a, a massively important principle for how God deals with his people. God forgives his people whenever there's a substitution made, when their sin is paid for, by another. And of course, that situation, what happened there in Egypt, it's only a forerunner 
of, of the great event that happened on a cross outside Jerusalem that we have just celebrated at Easter time. Friends, I hope you understand that, that when Jesus came into the world, he played the same role that the lamb played in Egypt. That's why whenever Jesus first began his, his ministry, do you remember what John the Baptist said about him? Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Whenever he said that, he immediately identified Jesus as the substitute, the substitute who would die in the place of the whole of humankind so that God's judgment could pass over the door of our lives, if you like. Friends, do you see how everything in the Bible, we've said this a couple of times in this series, and we'll be saying it again, everything that happens in the Bible points to Jesus Christ. He fulfills everything that the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament are talking about. That point, by the way, whenever God's people Israel came out of the land of Egypt, that is the point at which finally God's promise to make them into a people has been fulfilled. The family of Abraham, nearly 500 years later, have become a great nation. They have marched out of captivity in Egypt and they're on the way to the promised land. The first of God's promises to Abraham has been fulfilled. His people are now a nation and God now wants to bless them. That's, what we've, that's the second of God's promises to, to Abraham, is that his people would come under God's rule and God's blessing. And we're going to spend just a couple of minutes this morning as we close thinking about that. First of all, I just have to say something that, that might, might need some clarification. In the Bible, to be under God's rule means to be under his blessing. Now, that doesn't sound quite right to us. In our emerging postmodern society, the idea of, of rule and of authority always sounds negative. The idea that anybody has any, anything to say to us or any authority over us sounds like something that is always to be avoided, always negative. But that's not what the Bible teaches about the rule of God. The Bible teaches that whenever people are fully under God's rule, it's at that point that they enjoy God's blessing. If you read on, the reason, the reason we stopped and said that the first section stops at Exodus chapter 20, if you read on through verse chapters 19, sorry, Exodus chapter 18, if you read on through chapters 19 and 20, you'd realize there that in Exodus chapter 20, something very significant happens in the history of God's people. God gives the law, the Ten Commandments. And that's what we want to think about just for a moment as, as we close here. Whenever God gave the Ten Commandments, I wonder what you think he meant by them. Do you think God said, here's a, here's a set of rules. If you obey them, I'll accept you. Is that what you think the Ten Commandments are all about? I think a lot of Christian people and a lot of people in the church do think that, but it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. That's not what the Ten Commandments or any part of God's law is ever about. God never accepts us 
because we have obeyed his law. If you looked at, at the Ten Commandments, before God goes in and begins with the first commandment, he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do, do you see what God's saying there? He's saying to this people, I'm your God. Not I will be your God if you do what I say. Because remember what's going on here. God has made a promise to Abraham that his people, his descendants, will be the people of God. And that promise doesn't depend on this law that God now gives. Friends, it's so important that we understand that, that we never, ever make the mistake of thinking that we must obey God's law and that it's on those grounds that God accepts us. We obey God's law for a very different reason. And the reason is this. Now that we have been accepted as the people of God, obeying God's law means that we will enjoy living under His rule and enjoy that as a blessing. Do you understand the difference? God accepts us. He accepts us before we obey His law. But if we obey His law, we will enjoy our experience of being His people. It's very important that, that we understand that. I've, I've almost finished, but one thing that we, we read about earlier this morning was the tabernacle, the presence of God with His people. And this actually is related to the law. As soon as God gives the law, the next thing He talks about is the tabernacle. And there's an obvious reason for that. Because once God's people are beginning to live under God's law and to obey Him, then God's presence comes back. This is the most visible and tangible sign of God's presence that we've seen since the Garden of Eden. God's saying, you've taken my law, and now I'm going to come and be present among you. And I love that passage that we read earlier. It's a slightly strange story about a tent with a cloud and a fire above it. But it's all about God's presence. It's almost a very repetitive passage. Every time God moves, the people go with Him. Every time God stops, the people stop with Him. It's all about God and His people. And there's a, a, a new presence of God there. At this point in the story, I have to say, on paper it sounds pretty good. Because God has, has brought a new people together. He's, he's given them His presence. It all sounds pretty all right. But friends, one thing just before we finish. The presence of God at this point is, is nothing like the experience of the presence of God that you and I can enjoy in Jesus Christ. This tabernacle we talked about, there was a place at the center of it called the Holy of Holies, and that's where the presence of God was, was most, most fully thought to be. Do, do you know how often you could go and, and meet with God there? Well, you and I could never go. Never. We could never be fully present with God like that. Only one person, the high priest, could go, and he could go only once a year. Do you see the, the picture that we have here? Although God's present with His people, it's not a close presence. It's something that, that's very, very standoffish. 
the, the high priest only can go only once a year. Even then, he can only go after he's, he's had a lot of, made a lot of sacrifices, killed animals, and followed a lot of elaborate rituals. Friends, we are in a very, very different position than that. There is no boundary anymore between you and I and the Holy of Holies, the very presence of the living God. Do you remember we talked about this? Whenever we did our series in in Mark's Gospel, we talked about that moment in time when Jesus died on the cross on a hill outside Jerusalem, and we talked about something that happened in the temple in the center of the city. Do you remember how the temple there, the, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, the curtain that separates us from God. It's torn from the top just to to show us clearly that it's God who's tearing it. It's as though the door that stands between us and God that used to say no entry now says welcome. Welcome. Friends, we, every one of us, is welcome in the presence of God. I am finished now. I promised you a couple of times that I was nearly finished, but I am finished just now. As we look through the whole Bible, we're going to discover that the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. This morning we've talked about the people of God and we've talked about God's presence. If you want to be a member of the people of God, That was made possible when Jesus died on the cross. If if you want to enjoy living under God's rule and under God's blessing, that will be possible whenever Jesus becomes the king of your life, when you recognize him in that role. Friends, it's all about Jesus. If you think that there's any part of the Bible or any part of church life that's available to us or is accessible to us without Jesus, I'm sorry you've missed the boat somewhere. Every one of us here can and can know God and can enjoy the fullness of God's blessing through Jesus. Let's pray.